Good morning, everyone. May I introduce myself? My name is Michael, and I'm your friendly travel guide through the Book of Acts. Today, we will resume our journey and throughout um, chapter 16, 17, and 18, and I will lead you through Paul's second missionary journey. So as you might remember, two weeks ago, we looked at his first missionary journey, and, and notice that the question, what is a Christian, becomes more and more pressing as more and more people join the movement who are not of Jewish origin. Now, a week ago, we took a break from our travel. Actually, we took a break from this building, and we were at Riverdale and enjoyed a picnic together. And there, Orban elaborated a little bit more on that question, looking at the Jerusalem Council, that is roughly in Acts chapter 15, where the early church discussed, well, what characterizes a Christian and how much Jewish does a Christian need to be in order to be a Christian? And their verdict was that it is enough to be a follower of Jesus Christ, to accept him as a Lord and Savior, and, and, and follow a few moral things. But their circumcision is not required to follow the Old Testament law in order as a means of salvation is not required for a Gentile. It might be helpful for a, a Jew who became a follower of Christ to, to honor the tradition and to honor the Jewish identity. But it has nothing to do with one standing before God. Well, so today I would like to resume our travel and walk with you through Paul's second missionary journey. And as we do this, I would like to ask you to keep a few things in mind that we had already observed over and over again throughout the book of Acts, but also in Paul's first journey. So for instance, I would like um, to keep you in mind Paul's calling that we read in Acts chapter 9. There the Lord uh, says about Paul, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And I also would like to keep us in mind that the early church advances through external and internal challenges namely that they overcome it and then the church grows. And also, as your travel guide, I would like to point out a few things, a few background uh, stories and information about the cities Paul is visiting, because that helps us to understand how particularly the opposition arises. Because quite often the opposition to the gospel weaponizes the political and social situation of for instance, the cities, Paul is uh, preaching the gospel and using the sensibilities and maybe the fears of the population as a weapon against the gospel. All right. So let's begin here in um, Acts chapter 15, verse 36. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let us go back and visit the brothers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. 
Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them, but Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Well, that doesn't sound like a good start, right, for the second missionary journey. They, I don't think we can really overestimate the, the fallout they had. Maybe remember during the first missionary journey, John Mark, was kind of as an apprentice, went with uh, Paul and Barnabas, but he shortly after left Cyprus, he turned around and maybe went home. We don't know exactly what the circumstances were, but for Paul, this was a sign that this guy is not suitable for our. And so the second journey is off to a bad start. But there is Barnabas. And we know that Barnabas had a gift to be a sponsor, to be a mentor, to be patient and see the good and the... Not only the good thing in the people, but also the potential in people. And so instead of not going at all, or maybe just going together and leaving John Mark behind, they split. And through that, actually, two missionary journeys are happening. So something that looked like a bad start actually turns into something good, because now we have two companies going out. Barnabas with John Mark off to Cyprus, and then Paul chooses Silas and maybe... You remember from chapter 15, he came up from the Jerusalem council to Antioch with with, with Paul. And so they um, set off to the areas where they had been during the first missionary journey. And so as we we, we trace then their, uh, their first steps, we see they went back where they were before. Alana, could you please see the next? Yes. So these names should be all familiar uh, from two weeks ago. From Antioch, they go to Tarsus. That's where Paul is coming from. Then to Derby, Lystra, Iconium, Pisidian, Antioch. And it's interesting that they go back. Of course, for us, it seems, of course, Paul wants to see how people are doing. But these were also the places where he almost got killed. And yet he's committed to his calling to continue the mission. There in Lystra... Yeah, they pick up a young man, um, Timothy, whose mother is being uh, Jewish and father Greek. And the interesting thing is that Paul has him circumcised, even though they are on part of their mission is to, to share the decree from the Jerusalem Council that it's not necessary for a Christian man to become circumcised. But Paul is circumcising Timothy. What's going on here? Well, we will notice over and over again that Paul is doing everything to remove barriers for his message. And so, even though circumcision has no bearing on status before God, on salvation, he knows that if he travels with someone who is of Jewish descent who is not circumcised, that could be a barrier for him preaching the gospel to a Jewish audience. And so over and over again we will see this. Paul is taking every step to make sure 
that the gospel message gets to the people and not there's any distraction. Well, so then they move on um, to, to Troas. And actually, Troas is not the destiny where they want to go. Rather, they want to go to the province of Asia, which you will see here is basically western Turkey with an important city of Pergamon, Ephesus, cities with hundreds of thousands of people. That was their destiny. They're, they're determined to go there, but the Spirit leads them in a different direction, leads them to Troas. Troas was an important harbor town to connect that, what is today Turkey, that also Asia Minor and these areas with uh, mainland Greece. So in Troas, uh, they reach the again coast. Today there are some ruins um, still visible, highly active harbor. And on that harbor, as they, they spend there the night, they have a vision. Or Paul has a vision. A man appears saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And I must admit, I, for quite a while, I, I also have shared this when I've been speaking, that this was kind of a call to bring the gospel to Europe. But that was a mistake on my side because, first of all, as we will see, the gospel was already in Europe. There were other people already in what we call today Europe sharing the gospel. And furthermore, there was no Europe as we know it as a political and cultural entity. Just as there was no Africa and no Asia, but the whole Eastern Mediterranean was one kind of unit of cultural and political exchange. People didn't think when they moved from Asia Minor to Greece, oh, I'm going now to Europe, or when they came from Greece to go to Asia Minor, I'm going now to Asia or to Africa when they went to Alexandria. That is what we import when we are reading the gospel messages, for instance, or the book of Acts. So yeah, they set over uh, following uh, the, the, the route, the typical route to Samothrace, Neapolis, in Philippi. Philippi is the first stop on, on, in mainland Greece. Now this city has been founded as a Roman colony. So maybe some of you know that after uh, Caesar, Julius Caesar was assassinated, his um, assassins with their troops fled to Greece and the people from Rome who wanted to avenge Caesar finally engaged with them in a battle at Philippi in 42 BC and destroyed Caesar's um, assassins and their troops. And what was kind of custom at that time is that then soldiers were discharged, the veterans, they got property, and so they founded this city. So it was kind of a retirement settlement in Macedonia. And the important thing here is to keep in mind that this was, even though it was in Greece, it was a city as if it were in Rome. So the legal status of the people, mostly Roman citizens, they followed the Roman law, they had no poll tax. They had a lot of privileges. And as we shall see, the opponents of the gospel will use that against Paul. What we also notice in Philippi is that what will happen in every other city is there will be acceptance of the gospel and the rejection. 
So if we are worried that people might not, you know, if we share the gospel that we might receive some rejection or that people are not receptive, well, that's nothing new. That was Paul's everyday experience that some people accepted or are positive and others are dismissive. So as has been Paul's um, custom, he's looking first for Jewish believers, or at least people who are God-fears and are familiar with the scriptures. In chapter 16, verse 11, it says, From Troas we put out to sea and sailed through for Samothrace the next day on to Neapolis. From there we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony, and the leading city of that district of Macedonia, and we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. What I find interesting here is is that how Lydia not only responded by believing, but right away jumping into action namely to open her house. And we probably can, um, can, can surmise that that was the start of a house church or one of the first churches in Philippi. But what she's doing is she's sharing her wealth. She's sharing her means, opening the house. So it seems to be that a, a response to the gospel also changes how you look at your own possessions. And that I find interesting because shortly afterwards, Paul experiences opposition to the gospel. Because apparently there is a a slave girl who has a demon possessed and some kind of doing fortune telling. And she's following Paul with a message that seems at first positive, but actually maybe Paul thought this is distorting the gospel message if it comes from this person. This girl followed Paul in 17 and the rest of us shouting, these men are servants of the most high God who are telling us, who are telling you the way to be saved. And that kept on for days and days and days. And so finally Paul had enough and cast out that demon. Well, that caused a problem. Because the slave girl was owned by people who made lots of money with that fortune telling. And then they start their opposition to Paul and try and to weaponize the status of Philippi as a Roman city. But what I find interesting is here is that whereas Lydia becomes a believer, shares her wealth, the spirituality of these slave owners is more how to take money for themselves, how to take from others the money instead of sharing it with others. So obviously, very subtle. I think the author of Luke wants to point out your spirituality also has an influence on how you look at 
your material things. And so these guys, of course, they, they weaponize. Sorry, Alana, could you go back? Thank you. So they, they weaponize the status of the city, saying they're teaching here customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. Of course, it's complete nonsense. Fortune-telling is there's neither really a custom or a law, but they're playing on the sensibilities that here comes a guy who threatens the status quo. It's not politically correct what they are preaching. But of course, the underlying thing is they're threatening our finances, our monetary situation. And so it leads to imprisonment and flogging. And you probably know this story that as they are in prison, at midnight they start singing and, and praying hymns. And through a miracle, they're liberated. And that leads to the conversion of, of the jailer and his family. And once again, we notice that this was a critical situation. They were imprisoned. And yet it turns into a blessing. That this external pressure by overcoming how Paul and Silas react leads to a further advancement of the gospel. That not only Lydia and her household, and she must have been wealthy and a respected person, also that jailer was probably not just a, a pauper, but what came also from maybe a more what we call middle class family, and the gospel advances. So then they travel on on a road called, or was called Via Ignatia, to further to the uh, to west, to Thessalonica. And this was a very, very important road connecting Byzantium, so basically the Bosporus with the Adriatic, and then further to, on the Via Appia to Rome. Now, I want to point out here that Paul's travels were made possible because the Romans turned the whole of the Mediterranean, particularly the Eastern Mediterranean, into one economic, political, social um, area with relatively safety and also relatively ease of travel. I'm saying this relatively. The Romans built roads and, and enhanced shipping roads. Of course, they didn't do this because they wanted to help that more tourists are coming into that area, you know, that Americans and Canadians and Chinese tourists could come and see their, their buildings. They also didn't do this just because they were good people. Well, they did this in order to move their troops quickly if there was a need. But Paul could take advantage of this. But still, I want to point out that we can't really appreciate enough what it meant that Paul and his companions were traveling. Still, it was dangerous. You're not traveling in air-conditioned, nice cars or, or planes. You were walking, riding on a donkey, maybe on a cart. There was still could be robbers around. Shipwrecking was very common, as we then, of course, also later see. Piracy, even though the Romans took care of that to, for the most part, but still... It, it was dangerous to travel, but Paul and his companions all took this upon themselves to fulfill their calling. So they're coming to the next city, Thessalonica, and you see from Philippi, Amphipolis, Apollonia, you find all these names as you're rereading the book of Acts. Well, then there, 
the same thing is going to happen. Thessalonica was founded by one of Alexander's generals. You might remember that this was kind of a thing. If you thought you were um, an important guy, like a ruler or a king, at that time you found a city. And if you thought, of course, yourself really high, then you named it after yourself. But at least this guy had the humility not to name the city after himself, uh, just called it Thessalonica. So today, um, we still find there's some ruins under the, the modern city. It was a, not a significant large city, but probably can think of maybe 10, 20, 30, 50,000 people at that time, of course, that is large. So as I've been pointing out about Philippi as a Roman colony and how it got weaponized, this circumstance, so the same thing happens here in Thessalonica. It was a, a free city. That meant that it, had, it was autonomous, they could do their own thing, particularly about taxes. You know, we all worry about taxes today as well, and so the people at that time, they didn't want to pay more than necessary. And so they had the status that they had some tax relief. But that came with a price. That was called benefaction. Well, what is benefaction? Well, benefaction is that at that time, rulers bought loyalty through being a benefactor. So, for instance, so I just pretend I'm, I'm King Michael, right? And, and I'm a good person. And of the goodness of my heart, I finance a building. For instance, the Communiplex here in Wainwright. And then I also finance maybe a theater so that the people of Wainwright can enjoy the arts. And also because I'm a good guy, you know, I, I give you some tax relief, you know, your property tax. You know, maybe it's only just half of what you're paying now. But it comes with a price. Because in turn, I would like that you put up signs, oh, Michael is the best guy ever, Michael King, you know, we love you. And when I call upon you to die for myself on the battlefield, of course, you happily, you know, volunteer. That's kind of what benefaction is. And so these people in Thessalonica, of course, they, were, they knew what the deal was with Caesar and also the enemies of the gospel knew how to use these sensibilities against Paul. So yeah, we see the same thing happening as Paul shares the gospel. Here a nice picture, sorry, I'm with my, my slides, I'm sometimes, you know, getting a little bit mixed up. So a beautiful view, you can't maybe see it, but on Mount Olympus, I wish sometimes, you know, would be there, maybe not now because it's too hot, but but yeah, to enjoy this view. So as is Paul's custom, he goes to the synagogue and shares, and some believe, but others don't. And they not only just don't believe, but they want to kick him out of the city. And again, they're using the status of the city, as I've been pointing out, defying so the charges, well, they, they, these guys tell us we need to defy Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. Of course, it's not really true. But I think this is a reminder that the same way when we today share the gospel, and there is opposition, 
it often another motif against the gospel brought forth. You know, these guys are not politically correct. You know, they, they are the same things that, that are against our customs, our culture. Um, they're telling us things that we no longer believe in. But the, rea- but the interesting thing here is they never really come with arguments against Jesus or the gospel itself. They only use other things, and I think that's often the case today as well, that people don't really contradict or try to find arguments against the gospel itself, but rather come up with a smokescreen. All right, from there, um, they have to have to flee and turn south to Berea and then down to Athens. Of course, Athens today is the capital of Greece and uh, a huge city, but at Paul's time, they had their best times, so to speak, behind them. The city has shrunk, maybe to 25,000 people, inhabitants at the most. It wasn't a political center, but it was the cultural capital of the whole East because of its glorious past. There were also, of course, a lot of temples and, and buildings that we still can see today. So when you think of Athens, it was more like a university town. And a lot of people who had not necessarily lots to do, but lots of time to talk and discuss. And if you were an influential Roman, if you were a rich Roman, it was, it was um, really cool if you in a conversation with, in your circles in Rome could just share, you know, just on my recent visit to Athens, I did this and that, and I was listening to this philosopher. Or if you had the means in Rome, you would send your children, your son, to Athens on a, on a trip maybe for one or two years to study and learn because that, you know, that gave you that additional thing that people were admiring you or looking at you as some really cool guy who, who is so sophisticated and educated. That type of, of status Athens enjoyed with the Romans. So as Paul comes to, to Athens, of course, he does kind of a sightseeing trip. He probably sees the Parthenon. And he sees a couple of other buildings, for instance, a lot of altars and temples. For instance, this is Athena Nike or Nike, so of the victorious Athena. And, of course, he visits the Agora. Now, what is the Agora? Well, the Agora translates as marketplace. But it was not a marketplace like a farmer's market, where people selling their fruits and vegetables. It was more as the, a center to meet and talk and discuss. There were people who had lots of time to come together and share philosophical ideas, to talk about all the latest events. And of course, they had this time because they had nothing to do. Because other people did their work for them, namely slaves. And that was the place to go. So by the way, um, for instance, 
Herod the Great, when he built or rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem, that was his idea as well, to have not just the temple rebuilt, but build this huge platform as an agora where people can meet and talk and discuss, and that was then what Jesus had an issue with. So Paul goes to the agora because he knows there I will meet the people I need to talk to. And among others, he meets some philosophers. Some are called Stoics, the other are called Epicureans. Now, who were these guys? Well, f- regarding philosophy, when we think of Greece, we usually think first of Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, but even though their ideas were still around, they, they kind of were no longer as important as before. And the reason was that the concerns of the people changed. Because over the last 300 years, or starting with Alexander the Great, some type of globalization happened in that area. And just as we know from our time with globalization, a lot of things that we took for granted are eroding. Classical religion, the power of the state, identity, people tied into community. These things all changed for these people in that area as well. So they realized you know, our political system longer works the way our old religion with Pantheon and Zeus and all these guys seems not to work anymore. There's a lot of uncertainty. We need to find answers to these questions. And so these two schools brought answers to this question. How to live a happy life in these circumstances. And their answer was, of course, you can live a happy life. And you can reach this status of what they called ataraxia if you follow our respective thoughts. Now, ataraxia, that might sound for you some familiar because there is a brand name called Atarax in Canada. And very uh, compassionate physicians often prescribe this, particularly to children when they have a cold, when they have um, stuffed nose, can't sleep, are crying, and give the parents a hard time. Because this Atarax, as the Greek term says, will put these children to sleep, into a status of being free of concern. And that, of course, helps the parents, too. That's why I call these physicians compassionate, because when they prescribe this drug, they're not just thinking of the kids, but they're also of the parents that they can't sleep. Now, I'm not saying that you should drug your kids or your spouse, but it works. I can tell you it works. (laughs) So, yeah, these were these answers. And so what they came up with an answer is that the Koreans, for instance, they said, You don't need to fear death because there's nothing after death. And you don't need to fear the gods, you know, Zeus and and all these guys, because they live kind of at the outer rim and they're concerned with their own stuff. They don't care about us. And then also, you only need need to find the right pleasure. And that is often what today people get wrong about these guys. They think they were hedonists, you know, that they're overindulgence and all these things, but to the contrary, they said, you know, there are two types of pleasure. One pleasure that causes you pain because you want to experience it again. And there's another type of pleasure that gives you peace. So, for instance, the, the pleasure that gives you pain is you go to this fabulous restaurant and have this really expensive meal and drink this expensive wine. Well, a few days later, you know, maybe you feel, I want to go back. I want to experience this again. 
The same thing with sexual adventures. It doesn't satisfy. It gets, the pain comes back, I want to experience this again. But rather, if Korean said, you know, you should refrain from all that stuff. Just retreat, retreat to a garden with friends. Enjoy the little things in life. Don't get involved in politics or anything. Just enjoy peace and quiet in a nice environment and you will be fine. Then there were the other guys, the Stoics. They, they came up with a different answer. They were saying, well, you know, there is this world soul, this, this kind of God that permeates everything and we are his creation. And so if we are just in tune with this world spirit, if we follow the reason that this world spirit has, we will be fine. Everything has its purpose. We need to find our purpose. Don't try to swim against the stream and current of history. Just follow along and you will be fine. Material things are not really important. Just follow reason. And I should add maybe that these guys believed there was no spiritual things. Everything was material. The God was material. Our life is material. Our soul is material. And so with these guys, Paul engaged. And they asked him, can you explain us a little bit more? Because when he started sharing about Jesus and the resurrection, they couldn't understand what he was talking about. They thought, maybe he's talking about two gods. You know, one god is called Jesus, and he has a concert called Anastasis. Well, I don't know what these guys are, what guy is talking about. And so they invite him to share. And that is the third time that Paul or that we have a speech where Paul is sharing the gospel. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown, I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything, because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that man would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Though he is not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, We want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, a number, and a number of others. 
Well, when Paul shared the gospel, he shared it using the means of rhetoric, of oratory of his time, like a defense speech in court. And we have seen this when he was in Pisidian Antioch at the synagogue, when he talked in Lystra to the crowd of pagans who even wanted to sacrifice things to him and, and Barnabas, that he follows a script and that he very much tailors his speech to his audience. We noticed in preceding Antioch that he used a lot of scripture, quoting scripture, retelling the, the story of the people of Israel from scripture as he was sharing the gospel with them and also pointing out one, their main concern as the main benefit why they should believe him, namely that Jesus would um, free them from everything that the law couldn't free them. Then when he shared in, in, in Lystra, he pointed out, you know, I'm bringing you you're the living God. You're worshiping dead idols, but bringing you the living God who is the creator and the sustainer of you. And now to these pagan philosophers, he gears it also specifically toward them, that they can understand it, what he is talking about, even that they maybe agree with some of his statements, and also that they can accept that message as, as possible. You f when I read this speech to you, there was no scripture reference. There was no quotation from scripture. Instead, he was even quoting their own philosophers or, or, or writers in order to help them understand what I'm talking about. But then comes the point, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That, of course, shatters all other beliefs. And that is then his main message, where he urges people. It is interesting that he's not, just as in Lystra, he's not looking back and telling them, you know, Jesus lived and died and rose again and he will be the judge appointed by God. He's not telling them because of all the bad things you have done and because you have a sinner for all your life, you will be judged. But rather he's telling them God overlooked this ignorance. But now he's looking forward. The future is yours. You can either go this way or that way. And I'm presenting you the gospel that you can decide for yourself what you want to do. Two weeks ago, we, sh we looked a little bit how we share the gospel and thought how we can incorporate that. Because for obviously for Paul, it was not one size fits all. But he knew very well how to speak to his audience. And just as he had Timothy uh, circumcised, in order to move that barrier when speaking to Jews, he tailors his message so that all barriers are removed as much as it is on him when he shares the gospel. Well, after he was done in Athens, then he moves on to this next and final station of his second missionary journey to Corinth. Corinth it's been the largest city in that area, a couple hundred thousand people. And it has been 
well appointed to be the, the capital of the southern part of Greece. And the interesting thing about it is that it was gone for a while. The Romans destroyed it in around 146 as they were kind of cleaning up here with the Greeks. And the city was gone for 100 years and then refounded as a Roman colony again because it was just too valuable, that area, not to be used because it was strategically located at the land bridge between the Peloponnese and mainland Greece. And it was very convenient to use that land bridge as a shortcut for travel and travel of goods. And so this city was rebuilt from scratch, according to Roman city, and the settlers who come there were a lot of young people, very rich, wealthy city, upward mobility, a lot of things going on, a lot of partying going on, a lot of idolatry going on, a lot of loose morals. morals. I mean, you can imagine in any harbor town, things are getting out of hand once in a while. So he comes to that city on his final to, um, stop on his tour. And here he meets some very interesting people. In chapter 18, verse 18, it says, Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time. Oh, sorry, I'm jumping, getting here ahead of myself. Chapter 18, verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. So he meets Aquila and Priscilla. And apparently they've been Christian for a while. They were already in Rome. That's why I said Paul doesn't bring the gospel to Europe. But there were all Christians there. And apparently this couple was doing their ministry wherever they were. Now, you might remember that I talked also about uh, mentoring in one of um, my sermons about Acts and, and highlighted Barnabas as a mentor and sponsor. Well, you also can use a mentor who is not longer alive, like an historical example. So, for instance, for Suzanne and myself, Aquila and Priscilla are kind of our examples from biblical history. We can see our lives a lot reflected in their lives. We're doing ministry. We are tr not traveling around, but we are moving from place to place. We were in, in Germany, in the States, in Germany, in Canada, and wherever we were placed, we we work and minister. And I'm pretty sure if you go for scripture, you find some examples as well where you can see yourself as examples. So yeah, Paul joins them. He's a tent maker. They are tent makers. And he stays there for a while. And once again, we see how it plays out in this city. Well, before I want to point this out, this kind of is an interesting picture of a, a camel across that land bridge and that today it's maybe six seven kilometers long and it makes easy for ship travel at that time they didn't have the camel they were actually pulling on logs some ships across but it made sense because it was very dangerous to go around the peloponnese and so the tra travel 
um, and trade went through that land bridge and that made these guys rich. Of course, we find a lot of temples. That was, again, one of the big issues at that time. Temples, sacrifices, all kinds of things going on. Wonderful to see today. But it speaks for that these people were highly into idolatry and all the immorality that went often along with it. A nice view. Again, I wish we could be there and enjoy the trip. Again, we see this, that as Paul preaches, there's acceptance and opposition. But this time, the opposition comes to nothing. The Roman governor says, you know, I don't want to get involved here. And I think this is another thing that you can learn. The authorities, even though they are unpredictable, they might not be the enemy of the gospel. So then finally, this tour comes to an end and he returns to Antioch. Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time. Then he left the brothers and sailed for Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. Before he sailed, he had his hair cut off at Kentria because of a vow he had taken. They arrived at Ephesus, where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila. He himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to spend more time with them, he declined. But as he left, he promised, I will come back if it is God's will. Then he set sail from Ephesus. When he landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. So yeah, this is then the end of his travel. Ephesus will be then the focus of his next journey, his third missionary journey. That will be then for another time. But I want to summarize you know, our, our tour, our travel through that area by just reiterating some of the principles I've already mentioned at the beginning. Paul stays true to his calling. He preaches to Jews, he preaches to Gentiles, and he experiences the repercussions. Acceptance of the gospel, rejection of the gospel, even imprisonment and violence. And he stays true to it. He could have said, you know, after my first journey, I'm done here. You know, I think I did my fair share. No, he goes back to a second journey. Then he goes back to a third journey. Then we also notice that the gospel advances through external and internal challenges. And the gospel advances because the people, the believers, react in a way that the gospel advances. Empowered through the Holy Spirit, their reaction is critical. In other words, it matters. It's how we react. The beginning of the, the second trip. This, it gets resolved by having two parties leaving. Then, being imprisoned in Philippi, how Paul and Silas react. And then, for instance, Priscilla and Aquila. Being expelled from Rome, they come to Corinth and just keep on ministering and starting their church. And then also I want to highlight once again how Paul 
used every means to share the gospel, to remove any barrier, and, and even to, he was well aware of the culture. He knew that the different cultures and, and used that knowledge to share the gospel. There is value in, in studying one's culture. There is value in knowing maybe some of the literature, movies, and things like this of our time. Just as Paul used these as illustrations, as bridges that people could follow him and understand what he was talking about. Because he wanted by any means bring people into the kingdom. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I, th I thank you for these adventures that are recorded in the book of Acts and that we can learn from them and see how Paul and his companions really put everything they had into preaching the gospel. That they were willing to take any risk. They were willing to risk any danger. But also that they were creative and innovative. I thank you that we have the privilege to study these things and apply them to our own times. And I ask you that you empower us. That we can do that. That we are not looking to ourselves, but rather see the other person. What can we do to help this person see what you are doing in this world? How you have come into this world and died and rose again on the cross to save the world. And to bring everyone into your presence and into your kingdom. Heavenly Father, I pray that you use us here in the Wainwright Church to bring glory to you and to spread your message. In Jesus' name I pray this. Amen.